This is Changeling the Podcast. Welcome to Changeling the Podcast. Come for the glamour, stay for the vibes. I'm your host, Josh, and with us is your other host, Puka. Say hi, Puka. Hello. What are we doing this evening, Puka? Afternoon, Josh. Afternoon. Afternoon. Today we are talking with Andrew Goodman, author of the recently released kiss book, Dulahan, on Storyteller's Vault, and also the author of Paved with Good Intentions, At Roots of Legend. Welcome, Andrew. Uh, hello there. So we'll be yeah, talking about kiss book, Dullahan. So yeah, so we're gonna before we get into that, I have a question about it. Uh, I see it's part of Year of the Road. Is that a storyteller vault project or Year of the Road was a um, was a vault event? I suppose it was a publishing prompt to create works around the theme and ideas of the open road. Um, I'm a little behind the curve on that, but it was one of the things that gave me the idea for doing the book in the first place. Okay. I don't know that they're actually doing those initiatives anymore, but they're still listed as options when you upload text. So I say, go for it. So Andrew, uh, tell us about this book. So Kithbook Dulahan is, um, well, it's a Kithbook, so it's trying to be in the vein of all the other kith books that have been that have gone before it and introduce and take a deep dive into a particular changeling kith for players and storytellers to use in their games in this particular case the uh the dulahan which uh is originally uh, an irish folktale and supposedly inspiration behind the headless horseman off the back of that as we'll see quite a number of other things got roped into it sort of tangentially but I was surprised to find out how many myths and legends really tied in with this kith, as we'll see. Was it a mythological figure that you had already been aware of and wanted to do a kith write-up for, or did you kind of discover it through the process of doing other writing and just think, oh wow, that would make a really good kith to explore? So I had heard of Adulahan before. I knew the name. I knew vaguely that it was a thing that didn't have a head. What I didn't know was that it was a fairy, specifically. I think I'd always assumed it's just sort of some sort of ghost. And it wasn't until... Actually, it was watching a Halloween episode of one of my favorite YouTube channels, a series called Monstrum, which is now picked up by... um, I think PBS does it now, that covers sort of the sociology and development around different myths and legends, um, that I found out that the Dullahan was actually a fairy. At which point, as any, I think, changeling player uh, will have happen, as soon as you hear about a new fairy folklore, you go, ooh, that sounds like a new playable <laughs> kith. <laughs> so then I started digging into myths and legends a bit more, and uh, it became a bit of a rabbit hole, particularly when you then start tying in things with horsemen and the hunt. Um, very quickly, the wild hunt got involved, which you can see in a bit of uh, chapter three when we get to that. There's also the fact that the Dullahan being a headless horseman is, of course, you can't have a horseman without their horse, which then opened the whole can of worms that is fey steeds, and then just for good measure, fey hounds, which I think, 
I'd never really had a, a satisfactory amount of writing on them um, in previous Wall of Darkness editions, so it seemed like a good opportunity to go down that rabbit hole as well. In fact, I think I ended up going down so many rabbit holes and rabbit warrens that the Kith book ended up spawning an entire secondary book, the book you mentioned, Paved with Good Intentions, which had originally been an attempt to summarize driving and riding rules just for convenience at the back of the book, and then discovered that one fateful evening was sat in my living room floor with five different source books out, none of which had agreeing or uniform driving and riding rules, and it all sort of went downhill from there, and now I have two books. Um, well, yeah, why, why write one supplement when you could write two? Exactly. <laughs> um, but I digress. The Dullahan folklore started to, proving to have... It has a lot of tantalizing sort of bits of stories. Um, I picked up a couple of years ago, well, a uh, compilation of Irish fairy tales when I was visiting Belfast, and there's an entire section on the Dullahan and Headless Horseman, which I, needless to say, read ravenously as I was working on the book, including full-on poems and songs and a multitude of stories, which just sort of breathes extra life into the, um, into the book. Then you follow all the Headless Horseman stuff, which, where the story starts evolving quite a bit in the Americas. There's a surprising number, uh, a figure in Central American folklore of the Padre Sin Cabeza, where you have the Headless Priest, which is ended up inspiring an NPC later on in the book. Yeah, so it just it, it kept growing and growing, and before I knew it, well, it needed to be a Kith book. So um, hmm. here we are now. Okay. Well, so w with reference to those various threads of folklore that all seem to kind of accrue around this this figure of the Dullahan, something that I had noticed getting into chapter one, the different sort of myth themes that kind of weave their way through the history that you present. So what I got out of it, at least, was this sort of primal idea of almost like the anthropomorphization of the sounds of a distant hunt passing by, you know, so to hear all of those horses and hounds and shouting moving through the night, giving rise to legends of the wild hunt and its riders forming one piece of them as a kith. And then you have kind of this distributors of justice, and then a third one being testing the virtuous, like in the Green Man myths. So you have all of these elements of like vengeance and fear, but also order kind of woven through. Yeah, I do want to say we skipped over the little short story and the picture at the beginning. Oh, I true. just want to call out the uh, he little headless girl riding a tricycle terrorizing yes. people. I just... It was it was a nice touch to have the kind of horror movie opening in the prologue. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah, that one was a lot of fun, both to paint and to uh, to write the little story at the start. I always get chills when I'm going through those tunnels along the sides of canals. Um, and in England, almost all the street lamps, for some reason, are this sort of sulfurous Halloween orange year round, <laughs> which does just make it extra spooky. I just tried to think of, you know, what dual... As you see with the NPCs, I tried to have a diverse array of different uh, different ideas of the Headless Horseman, and I thought a creepy little girl out for vengeance fit, fit it quite well, particularly the slightly jarring aspect of her sitting on a little tricycle instead of a horse. Yeah. So did you do a lot of the art in this book yourself? I did almost all of the artwork myself. Oh, wow. Um, it's very good. <laughs> oh, thank you. 
And it's a nice callbacks to some of the original kids books with that sketchbook style that has like diagrams mixed in with or diagrammatic elements mixed in with the actual portrait. I love those old um, yeah. book illustrations. So yeah, I really wanted to try and pay homage to those ones. The glass icons as well are, are beautiful. Yeah. Oh, thank you. And yep. the border, like all the, the work on that. That's a lot of a lot of nice touches here. Thank you. It, it's definitely a work of passion, wanting the... I, I like the books to actually look nice when you're staring at them. So, um, yeah, a lot of work went into the art. So thank you for saying so. Yeah. Anyway, chapter one. Yeah, th- this chapter is a, the Headless Horseman. It's the kith book part of the kith book. The most kith book. Hmm. Like it actually has the birthrights and frailties, description of the kith, a lot of the background there specifically on them. So if I had to kind of pick three phrases to describe how they came across to me from reading this, I think agents of justice would be one. The terror of the prey would be another, like the the terror that mm-hmm. they instill in others, kind of in that predator-prey hunter dynamic. And then loners on the open road. And I think that that sums up who the kith are, but I'm not the one who invented them. So Andrew, how would you... Um, I think one of our listeners asked, if you had to give an elevator pitch for the Kith, what would it be? Yeah, I think you summed it up pretty well there. I think that covers most of the folklore and urban legends that ended up inspiring Dullahan. I think another sort of secondary trait that became quite big for them was also their connection with their steed or their hound mm-hmm. being, um, I suppose, that ty- as sort of an aspect of the loner on the open road. They do have one true companion with them at all times. Um, which is quite a big part of the kith. Was there any, um, there's a lot of inspirations in here. Was one of them Ghost Rider from Marvel Comics? <laughs> Absolutely was. Um, okay. There, it, it sort of became unavoidable at a moment after you'd, I'd read enough of the folklore and you start getting into sort of later adaptations and how the stories evolve into the modern age. And there, there's no escaping the fact that Ghost Rider is definitely inspired um, at least in part by early tellings of the Headless Horseman and the Dullahan. So mm-hmm. um, there's there's definitely some homages to him in here. But you also managed to tie it into some pretty specific elements from, from Irish history and mythology. So the connection with Crom Cruach and St. Patrick as well. Yes, that was an intriguing one that I, I hope... It's one that there's enough tantalizing sort of bits to, to want to tie it in but I cannot at all claim to be an expert on the subject, so I hope I haven't done anything untoward with, with the legends and the myths. But when I think I just stumbled across Krom Kruak, who I'd never heard of before, starting to research this book, and discovering that they were a god of sacrifice, human sacrifice, specifically around um, decapitation, just it, it was too good to not tie in with the Dullahan, because, of course, one of... <laughs> Easily their most notable trait is their severed head. And uh, when I sat down and had to go, all right, there has to be a reason this kith has their head detached from their body. Where do you go with that? You could just make something up entirely with the Fomorai, but Krom Kruak ended up becoming quite a tantalizing bit of real-world folklore that, that I really wanted to tie in. Particularly since Krom also became the star of the a, a repeated theme in the book of not just justice, but what happens when that ideal of justice is betrayed and corrupted, mm. and how does the dreaming deal with such entities? 
that betray that very lofty ideal. Crom sort of becomes the uh, first example of that in the book. Yeah, no, it's a nice... We've noticed in our reads of the other Kith books, you know, each of them seems to start off with kind of the origin of the Kith's frailty, and so this fits nicely into that pattern. And then we go through some of the other changeling-specific history stuff. I like the note that many of the Dullahan returned to Arcadia as part of the she hunting parties that were returning, but then those who stayed kind of wandered the open roads and fought for people's rights and eventually traded their horses for vehicles. Yes, that definitely becomes quite a, quite a key part when we get into the latter part of Chapter 2. Um, yes. Yeah, yeah it, it um, I think made sense that because the Dullahan, they're not exactly nobles, but the niche they sort of fill, particularly if you look back, it, back in British history, which tends to be sort of the rough political structure of the early Fae um, in the World of Darkness books, someone who held a position of judge would often be a sort of quasi-noble standing, so it made sense that being part of the courts, most of the uh, Dullahan didn't really have a choice in the matter as to whether or not they left for Arcadia. Hmm. But given the... I thought it was important that they not be, even early on, they not be entirely beholden to the she, since I wanted there to be this idea of the king is not above the law, hmm. which becomes more and more important um, to the Dullahan as uh, changeling history progresses. Yeah. There's another neat little running thing in, in changeling books. I think talking about their, their opinion on werewolves. And going, how do they know about the Fomorians with the whole Fomorian? <laughs> it's like a running joke almost, and I appreciated it when I came across that. Yeah, it has always bothered me, the, the overlap there. Having run plenty of werewolf changing crossover games, and I think in almost every game there has come a point where the players are getting confused with each other about the terminology. And um, yeah, it, it needed to be in there, I felt. Along with that rather vague bit, or, or tiny bit of lore from the old, I think it's the get a Fenris book tribe yep. book. yeah so, about the she would ride them <laughs> and uh yeah. the gets therefore blood oath to kill all she on sight was that actually in the werewolf book it, it was in a changeling book and the werewolf players like what are you talking about it's in book of lost dreams for changeling that's where i think it makes its first appearance ah the crossover book <laughs> yeah i know i had a get player that swore by it and the only reason he didn't kill all the other changeling players was because he had enough points in a cult to know the difference between a she and a not she. Mm. So when it came to yeah, sort of hunting parties and werewolves, it, it that was one of the first things that came to mind. And I quite like the idea of a Dullahan sort of sitting there awkwardly in the background whilst the she are doing something, kind of going, this is probably not a great idea. Well, in terms of getting into some of the mechanics of the kith i think the obvious one to start with is can you please explain the mechanics of having a severed chimerical head yeah that one ended up having a page long sidebar <laughs> i tried to keep it as simple as possible but also really wanted to try and cover as many bases as possible to just because it's it's frustrating when a game suddenly comes to a halt because something weird has happened and you're not you you're, you have nothing to go off of so with the Dullahan, their mortal head is still very much attached to their body. Their, they have, their chimerical head, on the other hand, is in fact severed, which does lead to quite a few complications. They can just about balance their head on their neck if they're sitting still. So something like a childling sitting in school could sit in the classroom taking notes, 
with their chimerical head on their physical shoulders and still be able to somewhat operate similarly if, I don't know, they're just walking slowly around the store doing grocery shopping yep. in their mortal main. Um, and you did later come up with a treasure to help get around that little particular problem. Yes, which actually comes straight out of an old folklore, so I was quite pleased and quite happy to add yeah. that one, mm -hmm. the Green Ribbon. One of the biggest problems that, well, one of the first problems that came up with was, of course, if your chimerical head is suddenly kicked across the room or something, this can be quite jarring and lead to uh, <laughs> some, what's the word? It's a bit disorienting. So you're taking a, a dex penalty or a raise to the difficulty of dex rolls just until your head literally stops spinning. But then including the older Dullahan, I just put it as grumps that they have a reduced difficulty, but I suppose if one awakened as a grump, that might not be the case. But uh, yeah, so it goes into a little bit about how you might deal with needing to carry your head around. And there are some suggestions. And later on in the book, there are some, uh, some merits you can take so that you're, if you're riding around trying to steer the horse with one hand and hold your head with the other, you can take a merit that just makes that a bit easier. Um, I still mm. want them to be playable. And, uh, of course, the last part is what happens if your head is missing entirely, which is gone into in quite a bit of detail later on in the book with a flaw called Headless. So, yes, you can play a fully Headless Horseman, but it is going to come with complications. There's another frailty, too. Touch of Krom Kuar. What's that from? Which is it? The cold, the gold. Uh, I'm not as familiar with the folklore behind. Not really much familiar with the folklore behind this gift. So, so where's the old gold frail pea come from? So that one does come straight from some of the old folklore. Some of the older Irish stories of the Dullahan do paint it a lot as this vaguely grim reaper-esque character. He's an omen of death or a warning of death. And occasionally the more let's call them unseelie Dullahan, have been needed to be fought off by people. And for whatever reason, gold has often been associated with warding them off. Uh, some of them have been unable to operate. Sort of when the sun rises, the Dullahan is forced back because it can't stand the sunlight is a, another reoccurring theme. They are very much creatures of the night. So again, when then researching for more of their backstory and reading about Krom Kruak, hearing a number of the descriptions of Krom being the gold-skinned god just seemed to fit too nicely. So uh, along with the, the head being separated, their other frailty then is that yeah, gold is painful to them, similar to the way a, um, a werewolf might be harmed by silver, and it's harder for them to cast magic onto or to attack someone wearing pure gold. It's a little bit like cold iron, just not as quite as intense yeah. for them. They also have this birthright, Jack of the Lantern, which is kind of like an entire epic scene possibility worked into a birthright, so I kind of liked that. And given that this birthright enables them to reveal ghosts, that's another point of connection with Changeling and Wraith. And yeah, I wanted them to have um, some good tie-ins still with how much they are associated with death in the folklore. So with their, yeah, their Jack of the Lantern one, allowing them to see ghosts and quasi-interact with them, although not to the same degree as Sluar, because I didn't want to step on the Sluar's toes. But uh, there's certainly a lot of stories about uh, the death coach is quite a common one, where a headless horseman is the coachman of a coach that ferries dead souls. Quite a number of stories involving that, so having the, uh, the Dullahan being able to see them seemed to fit. Mm. 
Yeah, and then the remaining birthright master of the hunt. It's good, but that one's sort of straightforward. What's going on there? Well, it's, uh, yeah, yep. it makes animal ken useful. So, yeah, this is the most animal ken focused anything I've ever seen in Changeling, and I'm I'm here for it. Yeah, it's uh, as I said before, I was always a bit disappointed when fey steeds and uh, and hounds were mentioned. Um, I have the old Kingdom of Willows book, and they're mm-hmm. in there, but again, just enough for you to want more. So, again, as I said with the the birthright, what's a headless horseman without their horse? I didn't want to have to force a player to have to spend extra resources just to play what seems like should be a natural part of the kith. So the idea that the fae steed and hound is quite close to the master of the hunt and therefore started reincarnating along with the Dullahan. Um, in fact, I'd almost—I don't think I actually said so in the book, but it would almost make sense to me that that's how Fey steeds and horses, uh, so and hounds, sorry, started going through the Changeling Way was mm-hmm. loyally following their Dullahan masters. And so, Master of the Hunt, aside from being able to enchant a horse and being quite good with animal ken rolls, it does give you a couple free dots in the Chimera background at creation specifically to get um, either a hound or a horse. And then when we get into those in chapter two, I do include the chimerical background cost of each steed. So if you, uh, to make it a bit easier to pick your companion. Mm-hmm. doesn't say that here, but if I was running this game, I would totally be like, uh, if you really want a chimerical falcon, sure, we'll do that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> you suggested that the other day. And uh, as soon as you mentioned it, I went, oh, that would have been so cool. Maybe in an updated version of the book in the future. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So after that, we get some silly and unsealy attitudes. The silly attitude struck me as we fit these tenets into our duty as judges, as like the Dulan perspective. And then the unsealy was sort of more reasons why they see themselves as victims and or justifications to do what they want anyway. That was an interesting balance to see. Yeah, I'll be honest, When in the past, whenever views on the Esquite and the Sealing Unsealing Code came up, I think I always slightly glossed over yeah. in, uh, Kith books, because I was sort of, I never really felt like, well, I'm playing my individual character, I want to make my mind up for that myself. But when it came to writing it for Dullahan, I suddenly, rather unexpectedly, found myself enjoying writing the section, mm. since if the Dullahan are to borrow a bit more werewolf terminology, if they're somewhat like the philodox of the Fae as the judges, it makes sense that, broadly speaking, the Kith have put a bit more thought into kind of the philosophies of the Fae. Yeah, it just suddenly became much more interesting because it was much more relevant to characters I was imagining with Dullahan. It became relevant. Why do we do this with the Seelie Code? Or why do we not do this with the unseely code and why do we enforce the escite because arguably the dulahan are often responsible for enforcing the escite and so all of a sudden it became quite relevant for a character to have actually had thoughts on this not saying that any player would absolutely have to but it is i felt like it suddenly became much more important to the kith than i've felt those parts of other kith books have been to other kith so I had a lot of fun with that. So I hope that comes across in, in those sections. And ultimately, like any Kith, the Sealy and Unsealy Code and the Ashit are both, all of them are open enough texts that any Kith can interpret them in their own very specific way. And I think that's definitely the same for the Dulahan. Yeah. 
And you've, you did a good job here of, uh, you have like a specific person saying what they think about each sort of section, sort of highlighting this is a thing that a Dulhan could think, but not a straitjacket. Mm. Mm. I always thought that was one of my favorite parts of the way the Old World of Darkness books were written, was the fact that you never get an unbiased storyteller. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think especially with things like the Sealy Code and the Esquite and oftentimes the history when you get into some some of the books i do think it's important to have a biased narrator because it it makes it more like at the end of the day these books are there for the players and storytellers to be able to make their own stories and if you box someone in by saying no this is what they think and why they think it then it makes the whole creation character creation process just that much more flat but you can quite easily get around that by simply framing it with this is what this particular character does. And in fact, it makes, I think, those characters a bit more interesting, and some of them mm -hmm. actually then pop up as NPCs later in the book. Yeah. It's also interesting in the profiling part, where they talk about like the other Kiths and Galane and whatnot, where it's getting into, what's the jurisdiction? Do you see that as sort of a thing that like different Dulahan would like argue with each other about, like on the edge cases and that kind of thing? Absolutely. I That was particularly when coming to the Nunahi and some of the Galane, where the Dullahan are very... As I was writing the book, I became keenly aware that the Dullahan are very, very much a Celtic kith. Um, I mean, most of the, I think, core kith are to some degree, but the Dullahan are specifically from Irish folklore. And not wanting to open a can of worms about some of how, you know, the Nunahi have been written in the past, it just felt like probably the the most appropriate way of putting it that the Dullahan go yeah they're I mean they're not our jurisdiction they operate under their own rules and I'm not really sure we have any right to cast judgment on them and mm -hmm. then left it at that they're more than happy to put judgment on the she though oh yes or the Thalane, that's the other. <laughs> well, yeah, then there's a particular bugbear for the uh, the Dullahan and the Thalane in the form of the Nukalavi. Yeah, the other kith in this book. Yes. Or, tell us about the Nukalavi and where that's from, like folklore-wise. Uh, so the Nukalavi is actually another Celtic folklore originally from uh, Scotland and the Orkney Isles. It is possibly the most horrific creature I think I've ever seen in folklore. If anyone has never heard of the Nukalavi, it's kind of like a centaur gone horribly, horribly wrong. They have no skin, they come out of the ocean, the torso of the man is attached to the middle of the horse's back, the horse has one eye. I thought an interesting trait of the Nukalavi in relation to the Dullahan, actually, is that the it's always described as the head of the humanoid part of the creature rolls around as if the neck was broken, which it almost felt like it was alluding to the Dullahan, even though the head is attached to it. And they are always listed as these beings of corruption and hatred, and they are just there to cause pain and suffering. And I mentioned earlier how Krom Kruak was sort of the first example of what happens when this very high ideal of justice is corrupted. And without wanting to get political, I think it's true that today there's not much that we would view as more heinous than 
with a few with a few exceptions, I think, of something that a person who is meant to be upholding justice and fairness and righteousness abusing that position. And the Nukalavi are born out of that when a Dulahan or a member of the Wild Hunt starts to abuse their power and the dream of justice they start to corrupt and eventually and there's a flaw for this similar to the along the lines of the uh, dark fate flaw they might just ride into the ocean and emerge as this monster and the knuckleavi are definitely written to be antagonists i don't think i'd ever let a player use a knuckleavi particularly because they're quite powerful but they are meant to be just atrocious and yeah so they're in there the only time i can think of the nokolavi appearing in world of darkness actually in so going way back uh there was a trilogy of novels that has been very specifically declared non-canon by white wolf but it was the mask of the red death trilogy which introduced the niktuku who are the nosferatu uber antagonists in Vampire, and one of them is named Nukulavi, the skinless. So it's, you know, that was the first place that I ever heard of it and then kind of investigated the folklore around it. So it's nice to see them as a proper kith. Along with a full body illustration. Yes. Well, a skinless full body. Yeah. Yeah. Which I had entirely too much fun doing. After Nukulavi, we alluded to a lot of it on the prodigal section, so... You know, talks about ghosts and vampires and I like the know. ghost section specifically for I understand what you're saying about not wanting to step on the toes of the slua, but I imagine the slua rarely get in touch with ghosts and then agree to take vengeance on whoever killed the person, you know. So yeah. having another kith kind of step into that role is a nice narrative option. Mm-hmm. And it would make for a really fun motley, I think, having um yeah. Slua and Dulahan working together. Um, with a potentially with a wraith crossover and the dulahan seem to be one of the few kits that actually like the red caps so you could get a red cap in there too yeah mm-hmm. as long as they don't treat them as a hunting hound yeah well that was the puka that was the big problem right <laughs> yeah they're a bit split on the puka i feel like most people tend to be a bit split on the puka in in game anyway it's terribly unjust <laughs> Well, I mean, a lot of the original folklore you hear about Puka have them turning into horses, which I felt could go one of two. I mean, the Puka probably aren't overly keen on the Dullahan when it comes to that. Um, I actually mm-hmm. referenced that again with one of the treasures later in the book, the the bridal. So I, I did specifically have the Dullahan say, if a Puka turns into a horse and offers you a ride, don't trust it. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, a uh, bloodhound puka, for instance, might get along very well with a Dullahan hunter. So, and you had a in the mage section. Are are Dullahans sometimes working for paradox spirits? That's, that that was that that is basically what I'm implying there. Yes. Um, <laughs> at one point, I had a. I ended up not including it, but I had a list of potential story prompts, and one of them was basically a paradox spirit shows up and says this mage has been bad go punish it so yes that that is exactly what i was alluding to in there and i quite like the idea of the dulahan going i have no clue what's going on but sure a job's a job job's a job yeah and then you have a also on the church you mentioned that before but it's uh 
different relationship than a lot of changelings. Yeah. I wanted to touch on that partly because of Crom Kruak being tied in with St. Patrick in quite a lot of the stories I've read, but also because of how much through certainly Western and British history, the church, for better or for worse, has influenced the idea and the as a result, the sort of changeling capital D dream of what justice, punishment, and just judgment means, and what would be worthy, I suppose, of punishment or judgment and justice. So it felt important to reference that with the Dullahan, particularly again with this repeated theme of there's the ideal of justice, and then there's the reality of it, and particularly the repeated theme of how far short the reality of it often falls than the claimed ideal. So yeah, having that that little mention in there about the Dullahan having a slightly different relationship with the church because their dream uh, had been so heavily influenced by it, whether they like it or not, uh, yeah, it just seemed important to touch on. Oh, and then again, it ties in with, uh, I mentioned the Central American folklore of Padre Sin Cabeza, one of the, uh, the, the headless priest, which uh, again sort of ties that in a bit more. Yeah, so then we have a picture before chapter two of a most partly skeleton horse, um, which I know it's not really connected to the Dulahan, but like I just keep on thinking of a Ivari Lewid. Am I saying that right? The, the Welsh horse head for Christmas thing. Oh, those. <laughs> and I'm like, how would you tie that into this? <laughs> I guess this is a unicorn skull head. But. Yeah, kind of. It wasn't anything in particular. It was what bits yeah. look. It's um, a lot of the time with the, the splash page watercolors, it's what makes for an evocative image. Mm-hmm. So I think I had originally done it without the horn on it. And then I thought, well, got some pretty emblematic steeds in this in this chapter. So if there's anything representative of a magical steed, it's a unicorn. So I sort of threw a horn onto the skull. But then the mane looks quite a bit, I think, like some uh, was inspired by uh, Kelpies and water horses, whereas the body is kind of a nightmare. So he's a bit of a hodgepodge. Yeah, I think it all works, though. The nightmare unicorns, I think, just accentuate the nightmare horse like what I've seen before. Yep. So then we have uh, chapter two, Wild Ride. I was really happy to see the thorough investigation of fey animals here because it's something that I've seen scraps of homebrew here and there i've played in a game with a fey animal and it's just never really been solidly developed so i like the deep exploration of how they work mm-hmm. in this open yeah you can't just put everything on the puka and the selkies it doesn't well you can but you know. <laughs> but yeah it doesn't it comes out really yeah so in essence with the way the fey animals are presented here they're changelings and in, in that they have a chimerical aspect and a fleshly aspect they have banality and they have glamour and they need glamour to survive but beyond that can you explain your conception for them and maybe talk a bit about how the Dulahan get their steeds so i think going way back to the initial sort of seed of the the whole fey steed idea was the brief mention that they're given in um, kingdom of willows which as i've said before i was and, and like you've said i've was never quite satisfied with um, just their brief mention and then not really being fleshed out. So they were, I think they were mentioned as reincarnating with their fey owners, 
having gone through the changeling way, so immediately you want to have a chimerical and a physical aspect, which was also part of the excuse for giving the Dullahan the plus two, the two freebie points towards the chimera background at creation. A lot of the time their steed or their hound will reincarnate near them, which is how they will often start with uh, get their steed. Not always, but could be how they start. Um, I do talk about fey breeding. The idea being, I feel like the dream of, I suppose the term would be the equine dream or the canine dream, is uh, I feel like humanity is probably passionate enough about that still, just given the sheer number of movies about dogs and horses, that uh, it is still possible for a fey animal, uh, a new fey animal to be born, just with quite Mm -hmm. low percentage chance. So there are, and I did include later, an NPC who's a uh, horse breeder. They could end up with Kinane horses, which I sort of, I think I was influenced quite a bit by werewolf breeding mechanics for this one somewhat in that. So there's a much higher chance of getting a Kinane steed, which just becomes a very exemplary animal. And so as a result, at least on the mortal side, you can get quite a good reputation for your, for your horse stock. Or there's a low chance that it might breed true. I think they also mention in the Selkies somewhere that occasionally a uh, a seal is born that learns to shed its skin. So, you know, there's sort of that, that glimmer of hope that uh, if there's a strong enough dream, whether that's that it is possible for new fey souls to be born. I felt more so it would be easier for a horse or or a hound since they're not sentient in the same way that a changeling is. Yeah, I won't go too much into that because there's a whole other book project that I'll start yammering on about if I start talking about fey animals too much. Yeah, you've left the door open for fairy cats, even though. Oh yes, this book because um, yeah, they're not really Dullahan things, yeah. but they'd be. Yeah, there were a couple times writing this book where I had to go. No, I'm, I I need to put that back on the shelf for another source book because otherwise this book yeah. will end up being five volumes and it's meant to just be a kith book. Well, I guess I will mention on the long list of changeling source books I would like to write for the vault, I do have an outline for the Bayok Shi, which would be the Beast Fae, because there are just too many sentient Fae animals, like the Kochi or the Kunanun, or... Yeah, and the idea there would be actually fully sentient, playable mm-hmm. changeling animals, but that's a whole other story. <laughs> well, that yeah, that also sounds like a big... Uh... Not stepping on puka toes, not stepping on werewolf and other shifter toes, like yeah. <laughs> but uh, and I can talk for that about that for a long time. So I will simply say that when writing Dulahan, I had to make a conscious decision to not start writing another book because this book already mm-hmm. spawned a second spin-off that it wasn't supposed yep. to. Hmm. But you also leave a lot of room here to kind of attend to those those mythological steeds. So I mean reading through this, the ones that popped into my mind. So one of the examples is the Hrimfaxi, which I believe is from Norse myth, and it made me think of Sleipnir, Odin's mm. horse. I was thinking about Shadowfax from Lord of the Rings, and I also kind of desperately want a headless Santa with eight reindeer steeds. <laughs> that wouldn't be hard to do, actually. No. Yeah, I mean, the mechanics are all are all there to put it together. So. Yep. That's a very, a lot more on the coal delivery aspect, I think. <laughs> yes. Well, but he's he's a figure of justice, so. Yep. Yeah. There's that new movie coming out all about it. What was it Violent <laughs> Night? There we go. 
I know this book's out. I, I do have a mechanical question that I couldn't yep. tell from reading, and maybe I missed it. What realm are these fairy steeds? I would class them the same way as probably, like with changelings, they'd fall under fae. Okay, um, like chimera, basically, or yeah, essentially like chimera. So I think, and, and then the same for the vehicles that come later. Okay, yes, yeah, that makes sense. Yes, I do like how we have walk, trot, and gallop separate movement mechanics. But also, just as kind of a devil's advocate question, compared with some of the other chimerical companions that this background would buy you, the steeds are rather strong by comparison. So how would you suggest balancing that out? I mean, Mm. if the steeds are available to any other kith, why should or would anyone take a non-steed companion, basically? You mean take, for instance, a hound compared to a horse or... Or like a bird, or or just something that's less powerful, but or like a chimerical, like a purely chimerical animal, I guess is what you're getting at. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think the physical aspect of them, like you said, does give them a bit of power that a pure chimera wouldn't necessarily have. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, it does make them more powerful in that regard. However, it also does come with its own drawbacks. I did mention, I think, earlier in the book that Dullahan often stay in rural environments because not too it's a bit difficult to just go riding wherever you like with a horse <laughs> yeah so you can't really bring your chimerical hound to class with you if you're in school yeah exactly but if you've got a genuine fey hound uh, that has a physical aspect to it you can't really bring that with you again it's sort of a pro and a con which i would hope helps to balance them out a bit i would say i think uh, one of the questions we had written down was to perhaps think about if you're fitting a Dullahan into a game. And I think one of the biggest bits of advice I'd say would be to think about how your animal, your chimerical companion is going to fit in mm-hmm. to the game you're playing. So similar to maybe how in, if you're playing D&D, you might, and you're playing a ranger, your companion's quite a big part of that. If you're playing, even more so, if you're playing a Dullahan, If you're going to be playing a game set inside of a freehold and there's going to be a lot of intrigue, you might Mm -hmm. perhaps not want to have a horse because it's going to be outside in the stable most of the time. Uh. But that might be a great place to have a fey hound that can sniff things out. Or if you're going to be on a big cross-country quest, then yeah, go for it. Have your um, dragon horse or your your phantom big rig trucking along with you. Kind of of reminds me a bit of if you want to bring a gilly-doo or a or even kind of a selkie or something in in your game there's like i mean it's true for any kith you could go this kith doesn't or this character doesn't really fit but this is much more you really have to either make the game around it or it has to have been something that fits it yeah it's it's definitely something i think that both player and storyteller would want to have at least given a bit of thought to before deciding on exactly what they're going to be using as the companion well, since you've alluded to the other two, perhaps we can talk briefly about fey hounds and phantom vehicles. I like that there's an entire system for teaching new tricks to fey hounds. Again, a use for animal ken. Yeah, I just tried to think of what, what you're going to want to do with your fey hound, and immediately having, having run games before and also having been that player, I know someone's going to ask, oh, I want my hound to go do this, mm-hmm. and... Uh, for the sake of everyone's sanity, it just seemed like that would be an important thing to include in the mechanics at the start of the chapter. Yeah. And something that could conceivably be applied to other sorts of animal. 
But I'll admit the phantom vehicles are the ones that I was really into because as much as, you know, in, in the classical folklore, there are plenty of fae steeds and fae hounds to draw upon. But then in modern media, you have Knight Rider and Christine and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, and even the Mirthmobile from Wayne's World, like all of these sort of vehicles and movies and TV shows that I could see being transposed into. You oh, know. now I want a combination of the two. And like, you have a knocker who's like really updated his Roomba. And now that's like a mechanical <laughs> for example yeah yep the uh the phantom vehicles i think were i mean they're probably responsible for the the birth of the paved with good intentions book um mm-hmm. almost single-handedly yeah the idea that i again you mentioned ghost rider that other rider mm-hmm. um, i mean knight rider also fits with this but yep. yeah um almost the mystery machine or uh yes well, the, um, the hypercar that's basically kit so yeah uh, Metallica was definitely from Supernatural was uh, mm-hmm. a bit of the inspiration behind the shady black sedan. I always come back to what is the sort of the, the mortal dream, capital D, that has inspired behind something. And especially when I was thinking about the Fey horses, just how quickly that had been overshadowed by the dream of the open road and the cars and suddenly you have all this folklore i think i came across some of it actually when i was starting to look into headless rider urban legends but people sort of you have uh, ghostly motorcycles with headless riders or phantom vehicles which is where the name came from sort of uh, strange black cars with tinted windows that seem to drive themselves and disappear through walls and they often get referenced as ghosts but the urban legends are vague enough and the dream strong enough that it seemed appropriate that it might make that jump and you can definitely see it there uh, with sort of just the the human mindset many of us name our cars i had a friend at university who absolutely named her car and in fact that car ended up becoming a sentient npc in one of (laughs) our mage games because what happens when a mage and a bunch of changelings keep talking to a car like it's a sentient real thing? It becomes a sentient real thing. Magic, Magic happens with a K. Yep. So the phantom vehicles are the mechanical equivalent of the fae steeds. They have a physical body, not a fleshy one, but a mechanical one, uh, as well as a chimerical aspect. They can move around on their own but i actually went to quite great lengths about writing why they prefer not to hmm. so it is essentially like another steed but it's a car instead of a or a motorcycle instead of a horse yeah this also this section i think this kith book in a good way as probably the most crunchy of kith books in changeling everything seems good to me when i'm reading it and i don't think it's going to be like too much for a game because most of it's stuff you kind of figure out at character creation but it's just it's it's kind of laughing at looking at all the charts and stuff i mentioned earlier the the other source book i wrote in the middle of writing kithbuk dulahan was paved with good intentions and that came about specifically when i got to the end of this chapter and had thought, well, I'll just quickly summarize the driving and riding mechanics because it's going to come up if you're playing a Dullahan and as a player or storyteller, I'd want them on hand. And then there was one fateful evening where I think I had five different source books open in front of me on the living room floor. I think I had Mage, Vampire, Werewolf, Changeling, Hunter. I think I had 
Dark Ages Vampire open on a PDF, and not one of the books agreed on how to drive or ride. Everyone had a different mechanic, everyone had a slightly different slant on it, and after so then I thought, well, I'll take the bits that work and I'll try to cobble it together because I can imagine, again, I hate when the mechanics grind a game to a halt because you've landed in a scenario like you're, you're in a high-speed chase. If you have a hypercar or a motorcycle that shoots flames, you want to be in a high-speed chase. But what mm. happens when the entire gaming session grinds to a halt because you have no rules to go off of, but you also don't want them so crunchy that you can't play anymore? So mm. tried to summarize them. And the chapter got bigger and bigger until eventually it popped off and became its own book, which is um, paved with good intentions, not nearly as polished as Dullahan because I just wanted to have the rules. So is that like an expansion on this section or is it? Uh... Kind of. I intentionally held back stuff about Changeling specifically. It really became how to hash out things like stunt driving. Some very wonderful people play tested it for me. So things like the handling, durability, and structure of vehicles was uh, thoroughly analyzed and uh, experimented with, and cruise speed and max speed. Paved also contains um, some more stuff on riding, so there's stuff on, uh, there's rules for jousting there, and mounted combat, there's stuff for stats for horse-drawn vehicles, because it annoyed me that there was nothing at all for oh, yeah. what if you want to drive a stagecoach. You need that for a headless horseman too. Yeah. Yep. So rather, um, but it would have absolutely tripled the size of this book, and mm -hmm. the rules also are not really specific to any one game line, and there were some things I really wanted to sort of fun things I came across, such as uh, what happens when you have a vampiric ghoul steed or revenant breed of horses or specific gifts for werewolves to do with driving so there's a little section in the back of paved that is specific to some of the game lines including mage which has sort of the spiritual equivalent the sort of brothers of the phantom vehicle called alternate engines which are vehicles with magical powers essentially that mages can take some of them might look oddly similar to uh, some of the, the Phantom vehicles, such as the Shady Black Sedan, which had to go in there for anyone playing a Technocrat. So, But I did hold back most of the Changeling stuff to put into Kithbuk Dullahan, since that was where it all started, and I really wanted to keep it in this book. Yeah, but you could probably, it sounds like you could, if you had both books, you could definitely use them well together. Oh, absolutely. Kithbuk Dullahan is not a reprint of uh, Paved with Good Intentions. If you want a bit more of the crunch on um, driving um, or riding to augment what's in Dullahan, I hope I've included enough in Dullahan that you don't have to buy Paved. I included like the basic summary of riding and driving um, in Dullahan in little sidebars. There's a chart, basic charts for the vehicles if you want to build your own phantom vehicle, um, including Chimera point cost, because I hate sitting down and having to do maths on that. So those charts are in are in Dullahan. If you wanted to uh, go even deeper into that, um, then I would strongly recommend Pay for Good Intentions. Link will be provided in the show notes. Yes. I have a, another question about this chapter. There's a lot of details about equestrianism and car culture and all that stuff like do you have any personal interest or hobby or whatever in some of these areas or is this all sort of research for the book 
I think I the best answer to that is that I didn't have an interest in them. <laughs> I, I think one of the one of my favorite things about Changeling is that something can seem quite boring to you. To borrow the term, it could be quite banal. And then you meet someone who to them it is the font of all glamour. And when they talk about it and you see it through their eyes, it starts to become that for you. Grand, I had done, uh, been around horses a bit growing up. My sister was really big into horse riding, so I've seen a bit of that passion before. So that was less of a surprise. I think it was the cars that was the surprise. I'd never really been the type to be like, oh yeah, I'm going to go hang out in the garage and tinker with, with the vehicle. And yet now I've gone and started taking classes to learn how to drive a motorcycle. And uh, actually last weekend was out uh, on the course, uh, on the motorcycle, and got to the point where they're like, right, open it up, get get a bit faster, speed, like get up to 30 going down here. And there was this moment where it suddenly clicked and I went, oh, I see why this is... This is why you want your skeleton cycle or be cruising down 66 on your hell's hot rod. Like, okay, I think I see the dream of the open road now. So uh, the dreams are there. You just kind of have to find someone that sees them like that and then they can share it with you. Somewhere there's a knocker that got a big boost of glamour from me last weekend. (laughs) So then we have chapter three, Highwayman's Horde, where we have some Dullahan of Renown. We have some crunchy bits. So among the Dullahan of Renown, I don't know, Josh, did you have a favorite? Well, it's been mentioned several times, the Padre Ricardo person. Yeah. But I just want to say one other thing that that hasn't been mentioned so far. It's also such a superhero character concept. I love it when I see that in change, like like the secret identity and going out and fighting crime while the daytime you have your day job. Like it's, this needs to be like a new superhero in some comic book or something. Or maybe there already is one, because it's based on an actual folklore. So, Well, the superhero aspect, less so. But the Padre Sin Cabeza folklore, some of them do... Some of them seem to spawn from punishment, where a corrupt priest has gone and he's he's had a po- bit of poetic justice, and now he wanders headless. Mm-hmm. But some other ones do paint them more like the old Dullahan stories, as these harbingers and warnings of... Uh, punishment and judgment to the wicked. I should preface this by saying I was very lucky in that I got to live in Central America for two years. Uh, once in for a year teaching in Honduras and uh, then for a year in Nicaragua. And I really wanted, I mean, the, the, the Padre Ricardo character, he's actually named after someone I knew um, in Honduras. And yeah, I really, he's, he's a bit of a love letter to Central America. Uh, there's not much more I can say about him. I think he was my favorite NPC as well. I tried to sum up the kind of can-do vigilante attitude that I think many of the um, some of the people in the culture down there I knew, and just I just love that character. And it was so much fun painting that picture as well. I just want to know how he gets away with. There's a note here that he leaves his head safely in the church tower when he goes out on a quest of punishment. And given what we've seen about the headlessness mechanics, wouldn't that be distracting? Or It would certainly be problematic. It's not a bad idea for him, I yeah. think, by any means. Just, it must be difficult to be a superhero when your head is 
back in the church. Definitely. And I think he would rely a lot on uh, shock value and his uh, chimerical companion, the Cadejo, which is also a fairly well-known Central American bit of folklore. Some of the NPCs, I allude to things that I just then don't explain, largely because of rule of cool. And Mm -hmm. uh, if they were dropped into an actual game, would probably require a little bit more ironing out. Yeah, Nina Headless823 also stuck out to me as that. (laughs) Like, wait, how does that work? (laughs) I very nearly went down, opened another can of worms with her her quote-unquote Trojan horse steed and decided, nope, you know what? This is going to be one of those tantalizing bits that maybe one day I'll flesh out, but just sounds really cool, and I'm just going to leave it there. I like that there's actually the inclusion of a Dantaine as well. I was about to say that. This is my favorite Dantaine I've ever encountered. Mm. She was actually inspired by a Dantaine in the old Autumn People book. There was a Dantaine there that had the attitude of uh, he'd witnessed some changelings going basically just high on glamour and running rampant and saw some people get hurt at a concert as a result and so then turned against the fae and uh yeah seraphine is very much that dialed up to 11 plus perhaps a little bit of dean winchester from supernatural riding around in her car (laughs) but yeah i tried with the npcs to really think of different ways that the dream of judgment could and justice could be played out judgment on the fae seemed like a particularly fascinating one to play around with since it's very easy to look at the changelings and go they're sort of the uh the bright colorful sparkly bits of the world of darkness and sometimes forget that actually they can be just as monstrous as anyone else because they're born from dreams of humans who can be just as monstrous so yeah that's where seraphine came in at the end plus again it was just a really fun piece of watercolor to paint yeah Following the NPCs, we have the Wild Hunt Society. And again, this is one of those things that pops up regularly across the books, but is never really fleshed out in a satisfactory way. So here they're presented as an actual Fae Society, complete with boon and ban and recruitment Mm -hmm. and rituals. And it's a nice, I think, write-up for that concept. A good story hook for a motley as well. Yeah, the moment I got to that, I was like, oh, this is a perfect use for a society. Because like... I sort of looked at them in like GC20 player guide. I'm like, oh, okay. So, but this is like yeah. perfect. Like it's this group that's been alluded to before, but. And elsewhere it's often presented as, as almost a traditional activity rather than an ongoing group. So having that change as well is interesting. Yeah. I guess the one question, this, there's no connection here though with uh, what beasties do, right? With their wild hunt. Well, but see, that's that's one of the many occasions when it's popped yeah. up without much more explanation. So, mm-hmm. you know, presumably they, the beasties and the Dullahan don't go riding together. I wouldn't imagine so, but I could see a particularly dark, perhaps like a member of the Shadow Court Dullahan might go riding with a beastie. Mm-hmm. I would not want to fall afoul of that hunting party. No. That could actually make for a really interesting antagonist in a game. Now that I think, um, now that you mention it, but I don't think they'd fit into the Wild Hunt Society specifically. No, no. Because no, no. again, of the dream that they're that the society is pulling on. Yeah. So again, in the early early stages of research of riders and the Fey, the Wild Hunt came up quite a lot. Actually, even in folklore, they're 
It's alluded that there might be some connections there with the Dullahan folklore. Um, we're not entirely sure. But there was enough there for me to go, this this really needs to be in the book somewhere. And yeah, I hope the society seemed like a good a good outbox for it. And it's a good reason to have connections with other kits as well, since you mentioned she and trolls might also be in the society. And it opens it up for other characters to have that face steed or fey hound companion as a background. Mm-hmm. And we get some merits and flaws my favorite of which is absolutely hard-headed purely for the visual of a dulhan throwing their head as a missile at people which shows up in folklore again a surprising amount in fact i think in one early draft i had that they could just do that as part of their birthright and it just got a bit silly um Mm. so quite a number of the merits are actually drawn from the folklore and kind of early early editions of the dulhan birthrights there are some great stories of Dullahan and skeletons, I think, having parties and going bowling with their heads. <laughs> so yeah, hard-headed, just, it needed to be in there just to yeah. enable a player for to, to have that fun if they wanted to. Yeah. Yeah, I like the, what did it mean? The tie with the green man thing. That was an interesting bit. Other piece of folklore to tie in with the Dullahan. Yeah, the um, Gawain and the Green Knight is a story that popped up a lot um, in the research, and I just wasn't quite sure what to do with it, because while it very much has that theme of kind of testing the virtuous, it completely didn't fit in with the sort of spooky Halloween-y vibe that the rest of the Dullahan have, when suddenly you have this uh, foresty green man figure. Verdant Main is actually a merit that I stole from my previous book that I co-authored, Roots of Legend, which is all about fairy forests, enchanted forests. Um, there's a bunch of new uh, forest-related kith, and we included Verdant Main as uh, an option for if you wanted to have a fae that was particularly aligned with the woods, with, with the green dream. And uh, so I took it and just sort of cut it down and edited it a bit to fit more neatly into Kithbuk Dullahan as a nod, yeah, to, to the Gawain mythos that pops up so much when it comes to headless folk. Yeah, it was my my favorite flaw here, the Gawain shame. I I love that kind of flaw and I feel like Changeling needs like a core kith based around something like that, because it's just so fairy in my mind. Yeah. I will readily admit that my favorite part of this chapter is the treasures. All of these are things that I could see incorporating into a game in several different ways. I do kind of have the idea with the burning horseshoes treasure that allows a chimerical steed to run through the air with leaving a fiery trail behind. I'd also like that to be adapted into burning hubcaps so that your vehicle can fly into the air. You're not the first person in the week that this book has been out to suggest that to me. So it's... Uh, Excellent. <laughs> absolutely, someone could do that. Um, and I think that would be... I think someone said they wanted to put it on... One friend said they wanted to put those onto a DeLorean. Um, nice. <laughs> or it's like when you see those hydraulic lifts that have like the neon lighting and stuff. It's that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. I like the treasures in general that you're not following the c20 core book thing of treasures are just Uh, arts like it's they're actually evocative and interesting effects and things like that as treasures should be yes i think so they're almost uh, especially as they get more powerful they almost become plot hooks in and of themselves yeah yep 
that's something I loved about the old Kith books was how they would always include a sort of Kith legendary item. Yes. Um, mm-hmm. But yeah, this this section is my favorite. And then we close out with a range of templates. Yeah, these are... I like these. I was okay. quite fond of the sort of Green Knight Eco Defender because, of course, that would be my favorite. The, the picture of a dog, a kid with a dog holding his head is just like... <laughs> It's so creepy and so like, what the heck? And then it's like, oh, but it really fits this kith. So it's that one actually terrified me. I think of all of the uh, different template Dulahan that I wrote up. I think that kid, the tiny terror, was the one that I found most cr- the the one I would least want to meet. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Particularly because of the idea of good and bad being that simple and black and white, and then having the power to enforce that just becomes stops drifting into the shining territory and yeah mm-hmm. well and it's like the girl on the tricycle in the opening mm. the each template again much like with the the Sealy code and the Esquite viewpoints was taking a different a particular idea and view on judgment and justice and kind of pl- spinning that out into a character which a lot of the time can be quite it's not a simple idea and particularly because when it's made into a simple idea, it becomes so horrific and so yeah, easy to abuse. It's kind of ironic of all these like sample NPC sample characters. The one that would be, if I knew the details of what was going on, that would least scare me is the headless horror. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Which, because it's just like, oh, he's just looking for his head. He's got a nice dog, you know. It's not, he's probably the most frightening to come across in the <laughs> middle of the night. But he just wants to find his head. He's even got a bag for it for when he finds it. Yep. Like Walter Raleigh. And that brings us to a lovely ad for Paved with Good Intentions. Which has a hyperlink. Ooh. And that's it. That's the book. So overall, you had mentioned earlier the um, D&D Ranger connection. I actually felt a lot of paladin energy from this in the classic, especially like second edition D&D paladin, which is what I grew up with. Mm. So that every paladin you know serving justice but then they all have their steed that they have this deep connection to that was the vibe i got which i was into but i also like the wide range of types that the dulahan trope can cover so you can get a cold-blooded hell's angel biker type or like christopher walken as the headless horseman in sleepy hollow that whole aspect but then you also have the noblest of knights possibility or it makes me think of the category of saints called the cephalophores that one of their tropes is carrying their own head so it's a very wide set of possibilities which i think is good for a kith to have even if they have a particular aspect to them that defines them like the headlessness does here those are my thoughts Mm-hmm. I'll have to wait a few days to be sure, but I think you've written my favorite Kith book. Oh, wow. Thank you very much. Maybe not my favorite Kith. Like, I like the Kith, but I, I, there's other Kiths that are like dear to my heart. But the treatment of this is just wow. They'd make good allies for Ishu. They'd make good managers for Red Caps. They'd make good foils for Trolls. They make Some of them make good customers for Knockers. So. Yeah. Good enemies for She who have reason to fear. Mm-hmm. Etc. So, yeah. Definitely, uh, I really like this book. If you're listening to this, I suggest you check it out. Again, links will be in the show notes. Yes. So uh, was there any other projects you're working on, Andrew, that you'd wanted to either came out recently or, or came out at some point or coming out soon? Or 
Yeah, well, I mentioned, uh, obviously, pay for good intentions quite a bit, which is not for any particular sort of 20th anniversary generic rules for driving and riding. Um, I think it's a useful book if you need that for a game, or at the very least gives you something to go off of. The first vault, but so Dullahan is the third book now that I've put on the vault. Uh, the first one called Roots of Legend, which I co-wrote and illustrated with Aaron Siddall. And it's all about enchanted forests. Um, I mentioned we've got a bunch of new kith in there. We've got rules for fairy gardens. We've got mechanics for potion brewing. So that was a really fun uh, project to do. Going forward, I've alluded to it already, but the first ever book I had started writing was probably going on 15 years ago, before the vault was even a thing, back on the old Shadow and Essence forum. Memories. Yeah, we were all we were up there. Um, was when I was living in Central America and just fell in love with the culture and the folklore and started working on a book just for fun for Kingdom of the Feathered Serpent. And I'd been working on and, on and off again on that book for a while and then made friends through some changeling forums who live in Mexico um, or who are of Latin American descent and they started giving input and it has since grown and grown and grown into now a, I've got a fairly detailed outline for a three volume deep dive into the kingdoms of the Feathered Serpent, which would be a setting for Central America spanning from the Mexican-American border down to uh, Panama. And um, I think that will probably be the next one that I will dive into. It's quite a big undertaking, but it is a very big passion project of mine. If the uh, Padre Ricardo NPC was a love letter, this one's going to be a whole sonnet, <laughs> several sonnets. <laughs> And I just really want to try and do justice, pardon the pun, to presenting the really rich culture um, that's down, rich cultures, sorry, that are down there, both for people who haven't had the opportunity to visit down there or to get to even start to get to know it, um, but also for the many um, Changeling players and World of Darkness players that live in those regions and who I hope would derive a lot of joy out of that book. Yeah, so that'll probably be the next big one, and I've got a list of about 30 projects that I'd love to do, most of which are Changeling, including a uh, Changeling cookbook, which never happened, um, <laughs> also ends up having actual game mechanics stuff, because I can't write a book without adding more kith. Yes, there are food-related fairies. Not all boggins. Okay. The original idea for it was going to include a ritual for boggins to purify cast iron to be able to use it. And then I discovered in C20 that cast iron doesn't count as cold iron. So the whole idea went out the window. You could still throw in the, the history. Like there's a story about how steel was tamed by the Dougal. So then you could have like this oh. epic thing that was done by the boggins for cast iron. <laughs> that would be quite fun. Oh yeah, the Bayok Shi book. For playing things like Kochi, Ectoned, the Kunanun, Salamanders. Because why would all the Fae be human shaped? Luca mm -hmm. there, but like you said, there are definitely stories of fairies that aren't humanoid, but are very much sentient beings in their own right. Like I said, I've got a lot of ideas, a lot of dreams to write up. We will keep our eyes peeled. More changeling content. Yes. yes. 
always needs to be more. So is there anywhere people could find you online to see what you're working on or get in contact uh, with you? That you... Yeah, I've got a um, professional Instagram, I suppose, would be a.goodman.illustrates. Look me up and follow me there. I put all of the stuff I'm doing for changing illustrations on there. Um, otherwise, you can find me on the Storyteller's Vault. Again, links in the show notes. Yeah, so that uh, wraps up this continuously spoopy episode of Changeling the Podcast. You can find us at changelingthepodcast.com. You can follow us on Twitter at, at changelingcast. You can email us at podcast at changelingthepodcast.com. Uh, you can find our Discord from our website, changelingthepodcast.com. And we have a Facebook page, uh, Changeling the Podcast. All of which are also linked in the show notes. Yes. So once again, thank you, Andrew. Yes, thank you. Thanks very much for having me. Yeah, you're very welcome. Until next time, I'm Josh, and with us is also Puka. So they say. And uh, until next time, uh, don't lose your head. If you're not using headless horsemen, fairy hounds, or back-talking boats in your Changeling Chronicle, we'd like to first ask, why ever not? And to second ask, have you considered Dullahan as an addition to your eerie Halloween road trip-themed one-shot? But aside from questions such as these, as always, this outro gives us the opportunity to thank our patrons who make this show possible. Derek, Raz Kabuz, Sanchiger, Seja, and Terry Robinson. You too can support this podcast in the dreaming-flavored tidbits we bring you by leaving a review on the platform of your listening convenience, passing it along to a friend, or becoming a patron yourself at www.patreon.com slash changelingthepodcast. Whichever of these paths you choose, remember that the headless, mostly headless, or at least pumpkin-headed vigilante nightmare will always be just around the bend, waiting for you. Let that cheerful thought carry you forward. Until next time.